You may be seated. Well, the title of the message this morning is Promises, Drunkenness, and Nudity. And uh, believe it or not, this is an apt description of what happens in Genesis chapter 9. God is going to make a covenant with Noah. Noah will then get drunk and naked in his tent, and the story only gets more interesting uh, from here. And there are two scenes I want to focus on this morning. Scene one is God's covenant, and scene two is Noah's failure. So God's covenant and Noah's failure. So let's start with scene number one, God's covenant. In the scriptures, there are six core covenants, and here are the covenants. There's a lot of covenants that are smaller covenants. Uh, They are a tangent to something that is happening in the story, but there are six core covenants in the scriptures. The first one is the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden, the Adamic covenant, then the Noahic covenant, the covenant God makes with Noah, then the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then finally, the new covenant. And these covenants are not random, detached events in the Bible. Rather, these are the building blocks of the biblical story. They're designed to tell the story of God's plan to redeem the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And so they fit together. They build on one another. And all of the covenants, when you study them, you see that there are weaknesses with the covenants. Typically, or I, should, I shouldn't say typically, but every mediator besides the Lord Jesus Christ fails. So we will see that Adam fails, Noah fails, Abraham fails, Moses fails, and David fails. And when you look at the weaknesses of the covenant, in isolation, it's hard to make sense of them. And so you you wonder, what is God doing uh, when he establishes one covenant after another? Well, the weaknesses are actually designed to point to the Lord Jesus Christ, because all of the covenants find their fulfillment in Christ. And in Genesis chapter 9, we see the explanation of the Noahic covenant, the second covenant that God made with the world. And I want to start with a summary statement of what we are looking at here. So here it is. Here's the summary statement. The Noahic covenant is the universal, unconditional, and permanent covenant that God made with every creature to never again send a worldwide flood on the earth. So this is what the covenant is. It's where God promises to never flood the world again. Even though the world is sinful, the world is wicked, God will not send a flood that will wipe out all human beings. Genesis 9, 11. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And this promise, this covenant, is not just with Noah and his family. It is made with Every creature. It is a universal covenant. Verse 9 Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. And so it's with every person, it's with every creature. And not just in Noah's generation, but for all generations, it is a permanent covenant. Genesis 9 16. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. So the, the, the scope of this covenant is huge. It's every person, and it's every creature. It is a permanent covenant that includes every creature, including us. And it includes all the squirrels and all the raccoons and all the mice, every creature. So you can look at your dog this afternoon. I can look at my dog, Manny, and say, Manny, we're in this together. God has made a covenant with us. He has made us a covenant that he has kept for thousands of years. And there are no conditions 
attached to the covenant. Often there are conditions attached to the covenant, but there are no conditions. God does not say to Noah, I will keep my covenant if you guys promise to be nice to one another. He doesn't say that. In fact, he assumes that people will continue to be sinful because God knows the heart of human beings. And he says, I will keep my covenant. He repeats this three times. He says, I'm establishing my covenant. It is my covenant. I am establishing my covenant. And the sign of the covenant is a rainbow. It is the rainbow. This is likely the most public sign of all the covenant signs. Every covenant has a sign attached to it. And the sign of the covenant is designed to remind us, it's a visible sign of God's invisible grace. So when you see the sign, you remember the promise, you remember the grace of God. So when you look at Abraham, what's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? It is circumcision. What is the sign of the Mosaic covenant? It is the Sabbath. And so there's some visible sign, there's some sign that is designed to point you to the grace of God. And the sign of the Noahic covenant is the rainbow, the most public sign of all the covenant signs. And as we all know, the rainbow has been hijacked over the years by the LGBT community, and it has come to symbolize the acceptance of every type of sexual sin known to man. Now, during Pride Month, uh, this last year, someone posted a church service that they were attending online, and this is um, what they posted. Here's a drag queen, a man, a bearded man, uh, dressed up however he's dressed up there, and he's standing behind the pulpit, and he's talking about human sexuality allegedly from the scriptures. And I think that this is a snapshot of what is happening in the world today, that this, this whole movement is designed to undermine the scriptures and pervert human sexuality so that God is dishonored and human beings are injured in the process. And so for many of us, when we see the rainbow flag in our culture, it does not remind us of the It's not the sign of God's promise to never flood the world. It's a sign that makes us sad, that grieves our heart because of what it is connected to. But as I've studied Genesis 9, I have been comforted by the truth, and I hope this truth comforts you. I've been comforted by the truth that the rainbow is God's sign. It's not just for human beings. It's his. It's his sign. Verse 13, I have placed my bow in the clouds. It's his. It's his covenant, and it's his sign. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, certainly, when we see the rainbow, we should remember God's promise. We should remember his mercy, that he's not going to flood the earth. We should remember his holiness, that God once did flood the earth because of human wickedness. We should remember the kindness of God, that he saved Noah and promises to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we should, when we see the rainbow, we should remember God and the covenant God made w- with Noah. But more importantly, we should remember that it's God's rainbow, that this, this rainbow belongs to him. Genesis 9.16 says, the bow in the clouds. He says, the bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. So when God sees the rainbow, he will remember his covenant. So it's good that we remember, but it's better that God remembers. Not as if God would ever forget his covenant that he made. It's not that he would forget it, but in many ways it's the reminder for us that God is remembering his covenant that he's made with every creature. And so the Noahic covenant is a universal, unconditional, and permanent covenant that God made with every creature to never again send a worldwide flood on the earth. And God has kept his covenant for thousands of years up to this very moment. 
And it, and it is this covenant that forms the backdrop of Noah's failure. So Noah is going to fail, and the covenant, the, this God who makes promises and keeps his promises, the, this faithful, holy God, is the backdrop of Noah's failure. This is scene two, Noah's failure. When you read the story of the flood, Noah is presented as the hero. He is the hero in the story. Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor with God. Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous and blameless man. Genesis 6, 9, Noah walked with God. Five times we are told in the story that Noah obeyed God, that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. So in the story, Noah is trusting God. He's obeying God. He's walking with God. If there were people on earth at this time, they would have written stories about Noah, about how wonderful Noah is. And and so we have seen the best of Noah so far in the story. But after the covenant is made, we see Noah at his worst. We see Noah at his worst. And I want you to notice several phrases in this passage. Verse 20, Noah as a man of the soil. So this comes right after the covenant is made. Noah as a man of the soil. The phrase is man of the soil. This is a significant phrase because it's tying Noah back to Adam. Adam was the original man of the soil. Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed the man, that's Adam, of dust from the ground. It's the same Moses uses the same Hebrew words to to describe Noah and Adam, that they are both men of the soil, men of the ground. And not only is Adam a man of the soil and Noah a man of the soil, Cain is a man of the soil, Genesis 4.2. But Cain worked the ground. He was a man of the soil. So this little phrase in verse 20 is designed to remind us that Noah is a sinful man. He's a man of God, he loved God, he obeyed God, he walked with God, and yet he is still a sinful man with a fallen nature. And this is significant because the world we live in teaches us day after day on almost every TV show, in the news, social media, everywhere you look, we are being bombarded with this idea that people, most people, are good. They're basically good. There are a few bad apples who do really bad stuff, but most people are basically good. In fact, this week, I heard a song on the radio by Luke Bryan called, I Believe Most People Are Good. Have you heard of the song before? He just keeps saying over and over and over again in the song, I believe most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. Then he talks about heaven. He says, I believe the streets of gold are worth the work. And so he keeps repeating this idea. Most people are good. Most people are good. Most people are good. So I wrote a song for Luke Bryan. It's called I Believe Luke Bryan is Bad by by Dan Rudin. And I don't mean a special kind of bad. That's not what I mean. Bad like me. Bad like us. That he has a fallen nature just like we all have a fallen nature and we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we allow the culture to shape our thinking, we'll come to believe that we don't have a fallen nature. We'll come to believe that we're basically good. We don't really need the grace of God. And so Genesis 9 demonstrates the fallen nature of Noah. So what does he do? What's Noah's sin? Verse 20. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. There's nothing wrong with planting a vineyard. A vineyard would have been good for for food and for wine. And it is very, very hard work. It would have taken Noah a lot of time and energy and a lot of thought to grow a vineyard and to produce wine. It's a long process. I, I was reminded of this process this week. 
uh, because right now my wife is making kabucha. Do you know what that is? You know what kabucha is? Uh, I don't know if making is the right word, maybe growing kabucha. And um, kabucha is where you take that scooby or whatever that thing is called, and it's like a pet. That thing is alive, and you feed it sugar, like sugar, and it burps, and it's kind of gross, and then you drink it or whatever, but it takes time. My wife and kids, they love it. It takes, it takes time. And wine takes even more time. It's a longer process. There's a lot of hard work. So this, we, we aren't to think of Noah as just somehow stumbling upon the sin that he commits. Like he just kind of bumps into it, and that's all that happened. This is a long process. This is a long, drawn-out process. And please notice that Noah's sin is not that he planted a vineyard. It's not that he drank wine. His sin is that he got drunk. He got drunk. Verse 21, he drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. So Noah is not a little tipsy. He's blackout drunk. He's take all your clothes off drunk. And it's shameful to get drunk. The scriptures are very clear about drunkenness, that you are not to get drunk. It is a shameful thing to get drunk and Noah's physical nakedness, so there's Noah in a tent, totally drunk, totally incoherent, and he's lying there in his shame. And his physical nakedness demonstrates the spiritual shamefulness of Noah's drunkenness. So Noah's drunk and he's in his tent. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. So Ham, his youngest son, he walks into the tent. Now, why does he go into the tent? We're not told. But he goes into the tent, and he sees that his dad is drunk and naked in the tent. Then he comes out, and he tells his two brothers, get a load of this. You're never going to believe what I, what I just saw. Now, notice how Ham is described. Ham, the father of Canaan. So Ham, he, he walks in, he sees his dad naked. He tells his brother, next verse. Ham, the father of Canaan. This is an obscure detail for us. It probably doesn't mean a lot to us to be the father of Canaan. But the original audience, when they saw that detail, all the lights would have gone off in their head. They would have said, oh, we get it. We get it. The original audience thought of Canaan and the Canaanites as the degenerate, dysfunctional, and immoral enemy of Israel. And from this moment on, in the book of Genesis, Canaan and the land of Canaan and the Canaanites becomes one of the central themes of the, whole, the rest of the book. It's mentioned 35 times in the book of Genesis. And so Moses is telling us a story about Noah's downfall, but he's also giving us a history lesson about where these peoples came from. And he's subtly answering the question, what's up with the Canaanites? Why are they so dysfunctional? Where did they come from? What is wrong with them? And Moses gives us a little clue in verse 22. Ham, he's the father of Canaan. He's the father of Canaan, and he sins. Now, what was Ham's sin? Well, you can read about this for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. There's a lot of debate over what Ham's sin is. Some say that Ham castrated Noah. That was his sin. Some say the phrase, saw his nakedness, meant that Ham had sex with Noah's wife, his mom. So it's incest. Now, are those possibilities? Do people make those arguments? You bet. Are there reasons for believing that? You bet. But I don't believe that this is what is being taught. I think the most straightforward reading of the text 
is that Ham dishonors his dad. What's going on here? Ham dishonors his dad. That Ham sees his dad, Noah, this great man of God, he sees his dad in his shame and he celebrates. He celebrates. He mocks. He scorns. He says, brothers, get a load of this. Did you know there's a part of the human heart that rejoices in the downfall of others? There's a part of the human heart that rejoices in the downfall of others. It is an ugly part of the human heart. There's a part of us that celebrates when people fail. It's part of our fallen condition. And so Ham dishonors his dad. And in the scriptures, to dishonor your parents is a serious sin. It is not dealt with lightly. Likely, the... The, mo- the more serious sin in this situation between dishonoring your parents or dishonoring your dad and getting drunk, the more serious sin is dishonoring your parents, dishonoring your father. Neither are good, but one is more serious than the other. Proverbs 30, verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and despises a mother's instructions will be plucked out by ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. I'm going to read that again just to make sure we caught that. Do you see what it says? The eye that mocks a father and despises a mother's instruction will be plucked out by ravens, by ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. And this is what Ham does. He mocks his father. He pulls his brothers aside and says, Look at dad, what an idiot. What an idiot. And it's hard to even, it's hard to believe what's going on here when you consider the fact that Noah and his family had been, been through so much. I mean, they would have watched their dad build an ark for a hundred years. They, they would have watched Noah be made fun of by the world as Noah preached the truth of God. They, they would have had concrete evidence that God's word is true when the flood came on the world. And yet shortly after they get off the ark, here's Ham, who grew up in that same home, scorning his dad. And if you're going to be a wise parent, you need to recognize that scorn and mockery easily build up in the hearts of your kids. You, need to just, you just need to recognize this reality. It's part of our fallen nature that scorn and mockery naturally builds up in the hearts of our kids. And this is hard for us to understand because as parents, you look at, you look at those kids that are running around and you're like, I didn't know I could love someone this much. I like all of my heart, all of my desires are, there, are for their good. And so you want, you, want, you want kids to respond to their parents that way. And oftentimes there is that love and there's that harmony. But if you're going to be wise, you have to recognize that sin, our little cute kids, they're sinners. They have a fallen nature. Now, why does mockery and scorn build up in the human heart? Why does that happen in kids? Reason number one, children are sinful. Mocking your parents is sin. Dishonoring, dishonoring your parents is sin. And our kids have a, have a fallen, sinful nature like our own. Reason number two, parents are the authority in the home. Parents are the authority in the home. That God, if you have children, God has given you those children. And you are the God-given authority 
in that home. And part of the fallen nature that we all possess is that we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told what to do. I remember when I was growing up, there was a neighbor kid who, he, would, he had this little phrase. I'm sure you've heard it before, but he would say, uh, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> did, you re- did you ever hear that? You're not the boss of me. Who's the boss of me? You're not the boss of me. And he would say that all the time. And I remember one time when I was probably 10, my dad asked me to do something that I didn't want to do. And I just said, you're not the boss of me. You know, just a little bit under my breath. You're not the boss of me. And I'll, I'll never forget what happened. My dad, he grabbed my arm and he said, what did you say? <laughs> what did you say? And I said, oh boy, I said that out loud. I don't know, if that, probably not good. And I said, I, said, I said, dad, you're not the boss of me. And he looks right at me, like 10, he looks right at me. He goes, I am the boss of you. <laughs> good point, dad, <laughs> you're right. You're the best boss I've ever had. Best boss in the world. <laughs> But there is, don't you see that in your kids at times? Or in other people's kids? <laughs> You're not the boss of me. And so that authority struggle in the home, the way it gets converted in the heart, is that the kids will look for inconsistencies in their parents' lives to invalidate their authority. This is what we do. It's not them, it's us, it's our fallen nature. Reason three, kids see the sin and weaknesses of their parents more than anyone. So husband and wife see it the most. But when you're talking about parents, the kids see the sin and weaknesses of their parents more than anyone else. And kids are very good at sniffing out hypocrisy. And parents are not perfect. Parents sin. Parents make mistakes. Parents get angry. Parents exaggerate. And so we have to be wise. If we're going to be wise parents, you need to understand that there's residue in the hearts, there can be residue in the hearts of our kids with some of that behavior. And it can, it can get converted into scorn and mockery, which violates the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. The reason that command is given is because we naturally do the opposite. But please notice that Shem and Japheth, Ham's two brothers, did not join Ham in mocking their father. Three sons. One of them mocked, one of them scorned, and two did not join. Genesis 9, 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders. And walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So this runs in the exact opposite direction of Ham. So Ham is looking, he's looking, he's, did you see this? This is, this is ridiculous. Japheth and Shem, they won't even look. They didn't even look where they're walking. They, they, walk, they took a, a cloak and they walked backwards to cover up their dad. Proverbs ten twelve says, it's a summary of this story in Genesis 9. Hatred stirs up conflict. Hatred stirs up conflict. This is what, if you were to ask Ham, Ham, are you stirring up conflict? He would have said no. But this is what he's doing. He's dividing the family. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. What a verse. What a verse that love covers all offenses. And I want to be clear about something. It's important that we understand something here, a truth here. 
Genesis 9 is not a lesson on how to correct people in their sin. So if, you, if you're looking to Genesis 9, and you're saying, okay, how do we correct people in their sin? This is not the text. There's a lot of texts for that. This is a lesson on how to honor your, your imperfect and sinful dad. This is what this text demonstrates. Certainly, it would have been appropriate for Shem and Japheth to say to Noah, hey, dad, you probably should not get drunk and go streaking. Like, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. So it doesn't mean that Japheth and Shem would have never corrected Noah. That's not what's going on. The lesson is to not indulge the impulse to exploit. Don't celebrate when people fail. Shem and Japheth, their impulse was to cover because of love. That love covers. There's a time to expose, no doubt. But the impulse of love is to cover. Now, what is Noah going to do when he wakes up? He can't remain drunk forever. So what will he do when he wakes up? Genesis 9, 24. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done, so he finds out what happened. So he wakes up. Now, what is he going to do? Well, in verse 25, we see the first prophecy in the Bible uttered by a human being. This is the first prophecy in the Bible. God gives a prophecy in Genesis 3. This is the first human prophecy spoken by a human being. And these are also the first words spoken by Noah. Noah is described all throughout Genesis, but here Noah speaks. And what will he say? Verse 25. He said, Canaan is cursed. Canaan is cursed. To the original audience, they would have said, this explains a lot. To us, it is very strange. It's very confusing about what's going on. Do you, do you notice who he cursed? Not Ham. Ham is the one who sinned. He doesn't curse Ham. He curses his own grandson. What in the world is going on here? Well, Moses is giving us a history lesson. Genesis 9 19, how do you explain what's happening in the world? Well, Noah had three sons. This is what it says. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. So you can trace everybody on planet earth back to one of Noah's three sons. Noah's three sons. And this prophecy divides the world into three categories. Canaan is cursed. Cursed by God. Shem is apparently blessed. Verse 26, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He doesn't say blessed be Shem. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So Shem evidently worshiped God. The, Shem, the Shemites become the Israelites, the people of God. The descendants, the descendants of, of Shem become the people of God. Uh, probably all of us are familiar with the phrase or the, the term anti-Semitic. Where does that come from? It means to be anti-Jew. Where does it come from? In Hebrew, Shem is Sem. So the Jewish people are Semitic, coming back to Shem, anti-Semitic. And so the descendants of of Shem become the people of God. The Canaanites become the villains, the Shemites become the people of God, and, and the Japhethites become the Gentiles, the Gentile world. And next week, we're gonna explore the table of nations we're going we're to explore how these things fit together. But at this point, we need to think about how to apply our text. So how do we, what do we do with this text? 
Three points of application. One, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. Now, kids, there are a lot of kids in our church, and there are kids in this room. And you got to listen to me for a moment. And here's the thing you got to listen to. Here's the thing you have to pay attention to. Do you want God's blessing on your life? Do you want God's blessing on your family? If you do, listen to your parents. Listen to them. Honor them. Give them kisses on the cheek. Do what they say. Don't fight them. Don't rebel against your parents. And do this with a joyful heart. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord God is giving you. And so the, the, the instructions for kids in the home, very clear. Honor your parents. Obey them. If you want God's blessing, do what they say. Obey them. Are they perfect? No way. No way. But you need to recognize the sovereignty of God. That God has given you your parents. And parents, God has given you those children. Now to you adults, honor your father and mother. Honor them. And the command to honor your father and mother is not based on your parents living honorable lives. One of the most difficult things to watch is your parents move in the direction of living dishonorably. That's devastating for people. You just like you grow up thinking, oh, "This is my dad, this is my mom. I love them." And sometimes, as people get older, they begin to dishonor God more and more, and it's very difficult. And I know you have all the dirt on your parents. And this does not mean you do not correct your parents. But what the scriptures are clear about is that we are to honor our father and mother, not because they're worthy of honor. In and of themselves, their behavior. You honor your parents because God is worthy of honor. That's the sticking point. So to honor your parents is to be an act of worship to the Lord. Now the application of that, what does it look like? Do you just, you know, spend every day with them massaging their feet? Is that what it looks like? I I don't know. I hope not. (laughs) But what does that look like? But the impulse in your heart is to honor them because you want to honor God. Number two, stay vigilant. Stay vigilant. As I studied the passage, I was not surprised that Noah failed. Not surprised. He's a human. So to some degree, aren't you kind of waiting for Noah to fail? You read through it, you're like, when is he going to, when is he going to fail? I'm not surprised Noah failed. I am surprised when Noah failed. I'm surprised when Noah failed. He failed not during the greatest test of his life, but after it, after he won the war, after he took the hill, after the, the biggest test of his life. I mean, think about that. He, he built an ark for a hundred years and experienced the scorn of the world. He gets onto the ark. God delivers him. They're on the ark for a year. He comes out. God blesses them. God blesses Noah and his, and his sons. He gives them the creation mandate. Noah is worshiping God, presenting burnt offerings to the Lord. God makes a covenant with Noah and every creature, and then Noah fails. He fails. He plants a vineyard. He gets drunk. It was not an accident. 
He wasn't like, oh, I thought that was water, but it was laced with wine, or I don't even know what that means. But it, it wasn't an accident. He, he knew what he was doing, and that sin divided his family. And so, brothers and sisters, don't let your guard down. And as you get older, I've observed this many, many times in my life and many other people's lives. The older you get, the easier it is to pursue pleasure. The older you get, the easier it is to pursue comfort. You can tend to think, you, you can think to yourself, I have earned relaxation. I'm at a stage in my life where I can have nice things. I can do what I want. I've fought the major battles. I've tried to honor God in my, with my kids, or I've tried to honor God in my marriage. I've fought the major battles. And so you tend to let your guard down when things are going well. I mean, if anyone earned relaxation, it was Noah. But that's not the lesson to learn. And so here's the goal. I want to give you a goal. Here's the goal. And this will do your soul much good. The goal is the older we get, the more we love. The The older we get, the more we love. The more we love God, the more we love people. The older we get, the harder we run the more we trust God, the more we give our lives away. This is, this is what the Lord Jesus has called us to. He's called us to walk more deeply with him the older we get and not go the opposite direction, not to take it easy. There's coming a day, there's coming a time in our lives where we will step into the eternal rest of God where there's pleasure and comfort forevermore. And that day is coming, but God is asking us to run now. We are to run now. We labor now. We give our lives away now. This is the time to honor God in our lives. Not to to just pursue all the the desires of our heart, but 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 to pursue the kingdom of God. And see, the Lord Jesus Christ has been so faithful to us. He's been so faithful to us, and he wants us to be faithful to him. And he says, now is the time to run. So can you have anything nice? That's totally fine. You work it out with the Lord. I'm just saying that our heartbeat should not be comfort, ease, security. Comfort, ease, security. It should be to trust God, obey him. That his name might be honored in our lives. So one question to think about here. Are you taking it easy in your walk with Christ? Are you just taking it easy? Are you just getting by, just taking it easy? If you are, change that today. Say, I don't want to do that. I want to to put my eyes on the Lord. I want to run now. Don't let your guard down. Number three, understand our need for a better covenant. Understand our need for a better covenant. The Noahic covenant guaranteed preservation and stability in the world. But the Noahic covenant did nothing to deal with the problem of sin. Right after the covenant is given, Noah fails. Right after the covenant is given, Noah fails. So the Noahic covenant does not solve our problem with sin. And if you look at all the covenants, what you see is that none of the covenants deal with the problem of sin. This is because every covenant is pointing our eyes ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every covenant is pointing our eyes to what Christ would do on our behalf on the cross. So which covenant deals with our problem of sin? It is the new covenant. It is the new covenant that was brought about by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. Where Noah fails, Jesus succeeds. Where Abraham and Moses and David fail, the Lord Jesus Christ succeeds. He wins and earns our salvation on our behalf. So a couple quick questions about the new covenant. What is promised in the new covenant? Forgiveness of sins, a new heart, new desires, a new creation, and eternal life. So what is God offering to the world through his son Jesus? Forgiveness of sins, where he cleanses us from the inside out. He gives us a new heart, new desires, a new life, and ultimately it is eternal life. The new covenant is where God deals with our sins once and for all time. Once and for all time. What are the conditions of the new covenant? Faith alone in Jesus Christ. To whom does God give eternal life? To those who have faith in Christ alone. To those who look to the cross and recognize that is where my sins are paid for. That is where my life is at. My life is in Christ. Who is the mediator of the covenant? Jesus Christ. The one who never fails. In the story, you want to put your hope in Noah. I do. I'm like, yeah, he's our guy. Noah fails. You want to put your hope in Abraham. We're, we're going to get to a place with Abraham. Put your hope in Abraham. No, Abraham fails. Moses. Moses fails. David, the man after God's own heart. David fails. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ who never fails, who accomplishes all that he promises. And then lastly, what is the sign of the new covenant? What is the sign of the new covenant? Every covenant has a sign or signs. Well, in the new covenant, the signs are communion and baptism. Communion and baptism. Luke twenty-two twenty. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the cup is the sign of the covenant. Every week when we, when we come together and we take communion, and we take the bread and the cup, we are, we are participating in that sign. We are remembering as a body that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who lived for us, who died for us, and he rose for us. That, that just the, the little cup, the little bread, it's, just, it's designed to put our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came to give us eternal life. He came to give us a new life with a new heart, with new desires. He came to give us his very spirit. And so that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to take communion uh, as, a, as a body. Uh, we're going to spend time, just a minute, just thanking God for what he has done, that the cup represents his blood that was shed, that he died for our sins because you're not basically good. We're fallen. We need the grace of God. And his body was broken at the cross to accomplish peace with God. And so I just want to encourage you to take, I'm going to pray, and then you can get up and you can go grab the cup if you haven't done that already. And I just want to encourage you to spend a couple minutes really communing with the Lord, thanking God for what he's done, thanking God that he's a faithful and perfect mediator, a high priest, the one who came for us and lived for us.